and welcome back to the 84th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories talking about the economy, a different perspective on buybacks, the the interesting quick dip in the bond market that has screwed a few people over, and then, of course, we will be talking about how Biden is weaponizing the Fed to boost Democratic turnout in the next election. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So our first topic today will be stock buybacks, and it has been a very contentious conversation a lot of people don't like stock buybacks. They see it as an issue. They see it as companies enriching themselves. And then there are others on the other side who say, no, 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 this is about our shareholders. We want to make sure that we're serving them the best we can. And we're going to buy some of them out so they can realize their gains at a little bit of a premium. And the ones that want to stick in, they can reap the rewards of keeping their shares and getting a little bit extra value. And there are, of course, more layers to it, and we will go into that in the article. But I want to know where you guys stand on it. A lot of people have not liked the increased rate at which we've seen stock buybacks since the 80s and 90s. And like I said, other people are more than happy, especially the Wall Street investors, to see it happen. So what's your opinion? Throw it down in the comment section. Do you think they're a good thing inherently, bad thing inherently, or do you have an even more nuanced view? I'd love to hear it. Throw it down there, and I will likely respond. Let's jump to our first article from Common Dreams. Why Warren Buffett is wrong and Joe Biden is right about stock buybacks. So we'll jump into a quote just to really lay the groundwork. Quote, Warren Buffett, one of the richest people in America, defending stock buybacks in his highly anticipated annual letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders released a few days ago. Quote, when you are told that all repurchases are harmful to shareholders or the country or particularly beneficial to CEOs. You are listening to either an economic illiterate or a silver-tongued demagogue, characters that are not mutually exclusive, end quote. So Buffett may be correct about buybacks being good for shareholders for the simple reason that each remaining outstanding share has more corporate profit behind it. But the Oracle of Omaha is dead wrong about buybacks being good for the country. They merely enrich people who own shares of stock. The richest 10% of Americans own 92% of the stock market, rather than add to the productive capacity of the U.S., end quote. So the question or the perspective that this author is raising is, hey, at the end of the day, Buffett, you, you may know what you're talking about, and Maybe it does benefit the shareholders, but remember, it's not actually adding anything to the economy. And at the end of the day, it doesn't actually help the U.S. become more productive. And then the question I have from here is, one, what are those companies supposed to do with their extra earnings? Maybe you're, he could be right. He will explain later that they could reinvest it. They could put it into new jobs, new facilities for different projects, or they could use it to buy important equipment that they need, therefore spurring on the economy. 
But also, you have to remember that these companies take on large amounts of debt. They have loans that they take out from banks. They have bonds that they issue. And they also issue stock as a way to gain money. So what do they do? Do they just let that debt keep growing? If they have issued a dividend on their stock, then imagine they're starting to lose a little bit of money. They're not necessarily in the best financial position, and they're still required to pay out that dividend. Well, the more shares that are out there, the larger the dividend, meaning the more they're going to have to pay those shareholders. So if you're a business owner and you realize, wow, okay, I have a million dollars in dividends I'm going to have to pay. But, you know, this year was pretty good. Maybe if next year doesn't go as well, that million dollars would hurt more than it does this year. So why don't we buy back some of those shares and make sure that at the end of the day, we will have a very simple and maybe even easier amount of money to pay off next year rather than it being a million dollars if we take 10 percent of the shares off the market then maybe it'll only be nine hundred thousand dollars so it's a way to mitigate risk and to take a little bit of debt off of their books and then what about providing stock options the author doesn't even highlight this at all which is a lot of companies when they buy back publicly issued stock they actually keep it in their treasury they keep it in reserve they don't just outright get rid of it they don't de-issue it They keep it so that they can give it to their employees and retirement plans. So they can give it to executives as bonuses. They can give it to managers as bonuses. So in doing that, they are actually providing extra benefits to their employees. And they're building a little bit of loyalty. They're telling their employees, hey, if you stay with us, we will give you these stock options. We will ensure that we are helping you so you will feel loyal to us and stay so it's actually promoting long-term jobs which are tend to pay a little bit more so i think the author has a very limited perspective here and i think there are different aspects that he's not intentionally looking over because if he is that's very intellectually dishonest in my opinion but also i think it's because he's not necessarily a business major and even as a business major i didn't get all of the aspects of this. At first, I have had multiple conversations with people who have highlighted a few different things. The dividend point, I hadn't even thought of myself, but I have talked to a friend of mine, and they highlighted the fact that this is another aspect of the equation. It's not as black and white as the author wants to make it out to be. So let's jump to another quote, and then I can highlight how he really comes down on this even more. Quote, To take but one recent example, last year the Norfolk Southern Railroad enjoyed record revenue and operating income, $32 billion in the fourth quarter alone, a remarkable 13% year-over-year increase. How did the railroad company accomplish this? By cutting nearly 10,000 jobs, reducing its workforce by a third, while running fewer, longer trains. Some trains now stretch longer than two miles. It made these changes despite warnings that they could worsen safety risks. The corporation also refused to provide its remaining workers with sick leave, and it failed to invest in improving safety equipment. As I noted last week, the railroad mounted a major lobbying blitz against stronger safety regulations. And what did Norfolk Southern do with all that money? It saved from cutting its workforce? running longer trains, refusing sick leave, and skimping on safety? 
Over the past two decades, it has boosted shareholder payouts by 4,500% along the way enriching Warren Buffett and other investors, end quote. And notice the, I, I do want to highlight this, and the reason I have this quote is because it does highlight Norfolk Southern is not necessarily using their resources in a way that this author likes. And it is a good argument that they are making lots of profit and they're cutting workers and they are lengthening their trains that could possibly be less safe. And, you know, at the end of the day, the author poses it as, well, that is how they made those profits. No, it could be that they made those profits and still made decided to make those decisions because they realized while making those profits, they don't need all of that. There's a very complicated calculus here when it comes to management's decision-making. But I want you to notice the little rug pull, the little trick he does here at the end, which is he's talking about all this extra money they're making, all of these terrible things from his perspective that they're doing, cutting costs, taking on more risk, running fewer trains. But then, at the end, he says, over the past two decades, it has boosted shareholder payouts by 4,500%. So all the things that he highlighted that were bad have been done over the last year, and he's trying to directly conflate them with this two-decade trend of having larger stock uh, stockholder payouts. It's a little bit intellectually dishonest. It's a little bit of a, a push and pull, a little bit of a rug pull, because he's listing all these things of this year and then lists or talks about historical data. And it doesn't actually say, well, did they buy back more stock this year? Did the increase for the payout of the shareholders, did it go up by another thousand percent? Or did it just go up by maybe 10%? Or maybe did it go down? He doesn't list that information. He's just using the historical data from the last 20 years to prove his point, even though there's not a direct correlation there. You can't make that. You can't draw that. But, 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 he does try to remedy this in the next line. Quote, specifically, it has spent billions on stock buybacks, hitting, on a, hitting a record $4.7 billion in buybacks and dividends last year that went off the rails, literally releasing a toxic plume over East Palestine, Ohio, end quote. And once again, if you notice here, that sounds really bad. Oh, a billions of dollars in stock buybacks. They Last year, they hit their record of $4.7 billion in buybacks and dividends. But he's not saying that that's how much they did in one year, especially considering he just mentioned that they made about $3.2 billion in the fourth quarter alone. So if you really break it down, the costs are probably going to be about double that for the entire year. You know, it's not very really feasible that they're doing all that $4.7 billion at the same time. And he's not saying that. What he's saying is they hit a record. So at the point of writing this article, they had hit a new high. So honestly, it could have been $4.69 billion dollars as of 2022, and then now they just had that extra $0.01 billion added on top, and that gets them to the $4.7 billion. So it's intellectually disingenuous, again. And I think this is something that you really need to keep out for in all articles, where they misconflate the information. And the reason that I probably picked this out is because I think stock buybacks can be more beneficial than harmful. So I obviously have a bias in this situation, and I was looking for ways for his data to not add up. 
But when I saw this, I was kind of disgusted. I was like, wow, this is a really cheap, dirty way to make it sound like they're doing all of this in one year. They're making the worst decisions last year, and then you come in and he really sucker punches at home with talking about the toxic chemicals that were spilled in East Palestine, Ohio. So just keep that in mind when you're reading things. Remember, just because there's past historical data does not mean that it is directly correlated to current trends. It doesn't always hold true, and of course there are plenty of studies that do lots of historical data analysis that do represent current trends. But you just need to be aware of that, especially when reading anything from a reporter, because they have an angle. They should, I would say they should be unbiased, but that's impossible. They have an angle, and they are going to tell their story the way they want to. And you just have to be an informed listener viewer. But you already know that. You, you're not coming to me to get advice about how to be an informed listener or viewer. I just thought it was important, wanted to highlight it. All right, so let's jump to, well, actually, I'm going to pull up one more quote from this article, and then I'll give a little analogy that I think kind of highlights everything that is going on here, and it kind of puts things in perspective. All right, researchers at Deloitte point out that buybacks and dividends have soared as a share of GDP, while corporate reinvestments in equipment, infrastructure have stagnated. Many of the social costs of this failure to invest have been shifted to the public at large, as we saw in East Palestine, end quote. So let me pose, and that's a really good point, which is there are other things that these companies could be investing in, but maybe they already have all the equipment they need. Or maybe they really do just want to enrich their shareholders so they're happy and they don't have an angry board when they are on those board calls, the executive managers. Maybe that's it. Maybe it is really that self-interested. I can't speak for all of them, and there are so many companies doing it that you can't speak to all of those companies' intentions. But I will pose a question to you. If you had 200... Let's decrease it, because probably not everybody listening to this has $200,000 in debt. If you had $20,000 in outstanding debt, and you received a check for $20,000. And you've really been wanting a car recently that is exactly $20,000. I know, pretty good deal for a brand new car, right? So would you buy the new car? Because you know it's going to get you around places. You know at the end of the day it can serve you to do your job or to enable you to maybe get an even better job because you're not afraid about your car breaking down all the time. Or are you going to take that extra $20,000 and pay off your previous debt and then work towards getting that car in the future? This is the position, a very simplified position of what these companies are, are dealing with right now. They can pay off outstanding debt and then with less debt payments, less interest payments in the form of dividends or maybe even depreciating value of their stock, they can reinvest when they don't necessarily have as much extra capital in the future because they've paid off some of their debt. Or they could buy that new equipment now that it will enable them to do their job and make more money. But that's a tricky situation. And some companies are going to go one way, some companies are going to go another way. But it, right now it does seem that the trend is towards buybacks. And it's probably because in a hard economic time when the stock market 
is constantly going down and the prices of their shares are going down. They're seeing this opportunity saying, oh, well, if the prices of our shares are going down, well, we can, one, boost it so it doesn't look as bad for us, but also we can take advantage and get the debt off of our hands, get those shares back within the company out of the hands of people that we would have to pay dividends to while it's a little bit cheaper to do so. So that's why you're seeing this trend. And I just wanted to highlight it, and I thought it was important to kind of push back against this narrative that this author was giving, because I think it is one that is not fully encompassing the issue. And if there's something I'm missing, which there probably are a lot of things I'm missing, because like I said, on this one, I am extremely biased, and I'm coming in with a preconceived notion of what's good and bad about this story. Please, throw down in the comment section, yell at me, I want to hear your opinions because at the end of the day, the only way that I get better, the only way that I hear other sides besides reading these articles and being convinced by their arguments is also listening to you guys. Maybe you guys have some great points that I'm not considering at all. And I think it's important to always listen and make sure that you're open to a good old-fashioned dialogue. All right, let's jump to our second story. From the Wall Street Journal, junk-rated companies are borrowing again. For those of you that didn't know, quote, bond yields have been rising again lately. They could create complications for low-rated companies that had just started to enjoy having easier access to credit. As inflation showed signs of easing earlier this year, investors bet that the Federal Reserve might pivot quickly to slashing interest rates. That increased demand for bonds drove down yields on new and existing corporate debt, end quote. So we'll do a little bit of a history lesson. We'll do a, the financial basics. Bond are, bonds are often seen as a, a safe storage of money or safer than stocks, but not as safe as a CD or maybe even like a municipal bond compared to a corporate bond. At the end of the day, people say, okay, we can go get a bond which is the assurance that I will get my principal back with a certain return. That's what we call the yield. And I'll get that in five years. So that's time to maturity or maturity date, five years out. So as a lot of these interest rates were falling, companies started issuing lower yield bonds because they're trying to keep average with the market. They're trying to say, okay, well, if inflation's, let's say, 9%, then we'll offer a bond that's 10%. So it entices people to come in and say, you know, I want to store my money safely, and I'm not really concerned about making a huge amount of profit, but I do want to beat inflation. I do want to come out of the bond with a little bit more money than I would have if I just left it in the bank account or in a investment account that has a certain percentage yield. So... That's what companies do. They issue these bonds and they try to keep pace a little bit with inflation and not necessarily, how should I say, tick for tick, tick for tat. They're not saying, oh, well, the inflation rate is 7%, so we're going to issue a 7% bond. They're not outright saying that. But as inf inflation rises and the Fed has had to tamp down, the interest rates have been really high. So companies have had to issue higher yield bonds to entice people to come and put their money in these bonds because they want to store their money in a safe way and be guaranteed a little bit of extra cash when they come out the other side, maybe five years down the road. 
But there was a really interesting trend. In late December, January, a lot of financial people, a lot of speculators were saying, okay, well, it looks like the inflation numbers are cooling a little bit. The Fed has done an okay job. They've been doing 5% or 50 basis points increases, and then they started doing 25 basis points increases. So at the end of the day, they're starting to cool things down. Maybe we can start to issue some lower-yield bonds, which is good for companies because they are getting money now, and if the yield on the bond is lower, that means that they have to pay out the customer or the bond buyer less in the future. So this is really good. You want low bond yields to encourage corporations to issue debt in the form of bonds. And investors, they want higher bond yields. They're like, okay, well, it may be a little bit riskier, but we want a little bit higher than normal just so that we can make a little bit of extra money. But we don't want it so volatile like it would be in the stock market where you're expected to either make plus 10 or negative 10. They want something where it's maybe around like 6%, 5% bonds. They're like, okay, this is just enough risk. And if we come out the other side with a little bit of extra money, that's great. So why is this an issue? This little short-term dip towards lower yield bonds and then now this return of the higher yield bonds after inflation numbers have come in and people are realizing the Fed's going to have to increase the interest rate. Why is that a bad thing? Because it's causing companies who are strapped for cash, who didn't take advantage of those low-yielding bond, that low interest rate, or the thought that the interest rate would go lower, and then therefore this little spike of lower-yield bonds, they didn't take advantage of that. And now they're going to get screwed over because they're going to have to start issuing debt, these bonds, at higher rates and shorter term to maturity. Because they can't say, okay, if we're going to issue you a, let's just say, 12% yield bond, they're not going to say, oh, we're going to have the maturity date out five years. No, 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 no. Because what if in five years that yield goes down like crazy and then they're getting screwed over because they're still paying out 12%. So with these higher yield bonds, the maturity is going to be shorter. So they're taking out year or two-year bonds. They're selling them to people, meaning that they're paying a lot of interest on the money that they are getting from these people. And also, they'll have to pay them back very quickly. Normally, this is hard to do. And if you're a company strapped for cash in a hard economic time, it is not the thing that you want to be doing, issuing lower-grade bonds that are not necessarily as safe, that are a little bit more risky, because that's not enticing to customers. And the type of customers you're getting are probably not the best ones who are going to, at the end of the day, insist that they get their money, and they're not going to be willing to give you any slack whatsoever. So this is dangerous for these small companies who are getting screwed over. They didn't take advantage and I just wanted to highlight this so you keep it in mind as we go forward. If you hear anything about, this is kind of an educational, a very quick and dirty, not in-depth whatsoever. If you want to research bonds, there's a lot more to it than that. And please go do your own research. But it's a quick and dirty. So if you see a story about it, you can kind of understand some of the basics of what's going on. And also understand that some of these companies are in a really tough position right now. 
in a lot of these big companies like oh, well, Caesars, American Airlines, that have a little bit of extra cash on the side or have the ability to issue bonds very quickly because they're large corporations that have these speculative, speculative offices anyway, they were able to take advantage of these low-yield bonds. All right, that's enough rambling about bonds. People probably don't care as much as I think it's interesting. Now let's jump to the last story coming from The Daily Signal. Biden weaponizes Fed to boost Democratic voter turnout, Ohio Secretary of State says. So I did pose a question in the article before. I'll pose another one now. Kind of a brain teaser or more consider this. How would you feel if your quote-unquote enemy got a new job as a manager at a company that you were working at and then they used their position to ensure you would never move up in the company. You would never get that upper-level management position. You would never even take their job in the future once they move up the corporate ladder. You're stuck where you are, and you can't change anything. Well, that's how some state Republicans feel about what Joe Biden is doing. Quote, Top Republican state election officials are opposing President Joe Biden's executive order, putting the power of the federal government behind voter turnout efforts. On Sunday, Biden delivered a voting rights speech from Selma, Alabama, marking the 58th anniversary of a historic voting rights march. Ahead of his remarks, the White House press release touted Biden's executive order listing actions by 10 federal agencies to boost voter registration. Those include U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, registration for new citizens at naturalization services, the Department of Education pushing voter registration to students taking college loans, and the Justice Department getting voter information to federal prisoners, end quote. So if you notice, all of these populations, or it would be argued by Republicans that all of these populations are perceived to be more democratic. And honestly, I don't necessarily know if that holds, because if you look at the population of people who come into this country from other countries, very often they tend to be a little bit more conservative than people give them credit for. And Republicans like to fearmonger and say, oh, these people are going to come in and they're going to vote for Democrats. Maybe they will at first, but a large majority of the populations, especially from Southern America, who have dealt with more left-ish regimes, they come in, they realize that America is on a track towards this left ideology, and very often they shift towards conservative candidates later on. Look at Florida, look at Arizona, look at some districts in Texas. So I don't know if this always holds. And just because someone's a prisoner doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to vote Democrat. Now, I don't have the statistics on that one. I do have information about younger voters, which they do tend to vote Democrat, especially ones that go to college. So that makes sense when the Republican secretaries of state are saying this is this is dangerous or the election officials in each of these states are saying this is dangerous. They're just giving more votes to the Democrats rather than being fair about it. I can see that argument for the the education department pushing voter registration for people taking out college loans. I can see that one. With the other ones, I don't think it says black and white. And I just wanted to highlight the difference there because this article really does frame it as, oh, they're outright rigging it. I say rigging it. They are outright pushing for more Democrats to be able to vote. I'm like, it's not that simple. 
You can't just look at a demographic group and say, yes, they will always vote Democrat or they will always vote Republican because that's not true. Union workers and industry workers used to vote for Democrats. Now they're voting for Republicans. And now the Republicans aren't necessarily talking about the issues they care about as much. And they're talking about culture war things. Some of them have gone back to Democrats. No single group, whether you want to be identity group, class, or even working group like the railroad industry or the white collar jobs, no one group is a a monolith. Let's put it that way. No one group can be said you will all they will always vote this way. Maybe Christians, but even then, I know plenty of Democratic Christians. So it's not it's not that simple, especially nowadays. But that doesn't stop them from talking about it. Quote: LaRose said Ohio wants all eligible voters to register to vote and be able to easily vote. Quote. But to sort of weaponize the federal government to really try to drive Democrat registration, and that's what they're focused on, that's problematic. And we're going to continue fighting it, LaRose said. The Biden executive order signed in 2021 also talks about partnering with, quote, nonpartisan organizations to increase voter registration and voter participation. However, the Biden administration has not provided information to the news media or watchdog groups about which organizations are partnering with the federal government, end quote. And I think weaponized here from LaRose is a very, very strong, strong word. And, you know, Biden's using the power at his disposal to help his party. He is not, at the end of the day, weaponizing anything. He is trying to ensure that his party maybe even him specifically, that he will get back into office, okay? That is what it really comes down to. And maybe I'm a little bit cynical here, but I would ask the question, if a Republican was the president and they were trying to increase voter turnout by reaching out to evangelical Christian churches, would the Republicans be outraged about that? Would they say, oh, well, you're trying to rig it for your side, you're, this is unfair, whoever the president would be, this is unfair, you're using your power to just register more voters and really skew it your way. No, they wouldn't say anything because it would benefit them. And the Democrats, who aren't saying anything about this currently, would be outraged and they would be talking about this just like this conservative article is doing as well. So what I'm pointing out here is at the end of the day, I don't think it's good. I don't think either party in power should use that power of the federal government to increase the turnout of either party. And I want to highlight that the only reason Republicans are throwing history fit is because it's not in their favor. And let's be clear, if a Republican gets in office and they do, these Republicans push back if a Republican president tried to do this, then all the more power to him. I will take my comments back. I will say I am absolutely sorry for calling you hypocrites or saying you wouldn't care whatsoever. But until that point, prove me wrong is what I'm saying. Because at the end of the day, I am a little bit cynical on this one. I think people use the lever of of power that they are given, not necessarily in a responsible way. And one side gets outraged when they're used against them and are completely happy to go along with it when it is used for them. All right, with all that mean anti-authority conversation talk, let's jump past it. Let's go something that's going to leave you with a little bit of a smile. Our daily delight comes from Enberg News. 
Edinburgh Zoo shares adorable photos of tiny bagot goat born last month. So many of us may not actually know what a bagot goat is, but there is no doubt that they are cute little animals. Quote, an adorable baby bagot goat was born at Edinburgh Zoo last month. The tiny newborn named Grace by keepers at the Wildlife Conservation Charity was born on February 19th to parents Patrick and Janice, end quote. In the first video of the article, is immediately endearing for this little this little one. She's jumping back and forth. Actually, I'll just read the quote from it. Quote, to welcome the new arrival, the zoo has released the first pictures of Grace, as well as a video of her playing on a seesaw in her enclosure. Edinburgh Zoo is now home to five bagot goats, including parents Patrick and Janice, another adult female, Judith, and three young kids, Freddie, Frankie, and new arrival Grace. The herd arrived at the zoo in November 2021, end quote. So if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of Grace, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below, that like and subscribe button. Also down there is the links to the Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Podvine, places where you can go and download the podcast, listen in your car. And also down there is the Twitter handle, at your daily flip. On Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I post a link to the video on YouTube so you don't have to go anywhere else to find it. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.